You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, This is why we can't have nice things. Or actually, this is what happens when not-so-nice people or dense people, mostly male people, think their things are so nice that everyone wants to see them. That's probably too generous a take on the unsolicited dick pic, and that's, of course, the thing that I'm talking about here, the unsolicited dick pic. Because most guys who send unsolicited dick pics aren't trying to be nice. According to a study published in the Journal of Sex Research, most men who send dick pics aren't trying to be assholes either. They're trying to get laid or get dirty pics in return. The study looking into this, which researchers hilariously titled, I'll show you mine so you'll show me yours, motivations and personality variables and photographic exhibitionism. That study looked into the motives of unsolicited dick pic senders and found that way more than half were hoping to elicit a positive response, get a pic in return in most cases, or get laid. Only 16% were motivated by a desire to do harm, to annoy or harass the recipient of that dick pic they sent. This research also found that men who send unsolicited dick pics tend to be younger, more narcissistic, and sexist. When you think about it, the unsolicited dick pic was inevitable. We should have seen those things coming when the disinhibiting aspects of anonymity combined with brand new smartphone technology and the age-old attitude so prevalent among straight men, that they are entitled to women's attention and women's bodies, including women's eyeballs. Hashtag not all straight men and hashtag gay men do that shit too. Hashtag all the time. But it lands different when gay men do it to other gay men. And there's research to back that up too. In another study published in the Journal of Sex Research again, a study with a slightly less entertaining title, Women's and Men's Reactions to Receiving Unsolicited Genital Images from Men, Researchers found that while most women felt negatively about receiving an unsolicited dick pic, giving us perhaps another example of something where intent matters less than impact, while most straight women felt negatively about receiving those unsolicited dick pics, most gay men felt positively about receiving them. It doesn't take long to figure out why that might be. For gay men, less subject, as we are, to unwelcome sexual attention from Bosses, coworkers, strangers on the bus or the subway, teachers, youth pastors, and on and on, that dick pic feels more like an invitation and less like a threat. And again, threatening is the intent of about 16% of guys who send unsolicited dick pics and fuck those guys. Still, gotta say, looking at the research, looking at the data, about 25% of women reported a positive response after receiving an unsolicited dick pic. Not any pic of any old dick, but a specific instance where a specific guy sent a specific pic of his specific dick. So guys out there listening, I don't want you to hear that 25% figure and think, good odds. Just because one straight guy guessed correctly doesn't mean more straight guys should go ahead and guess. Chances are much greater that you'll turn off or offend or scare a woman by sending an unsolicited dick pic. And if Peyton Hemi of Bumble has anything to say about it, and she does, chances are good that you'll get in legal trouble or could get into legal trouble soon for sending unsolicited dick pics or any other unwelcome, uninvited, unasked for lewd images. 
Emmy was just profiled in the New York Times style section over the weekend. She works for Bumble, the dating app where women have to make the first move. But even there, even on Bumble, women get unsolicited dick pics and other lewd images, which turn most women off and can drive women away from using dating apps like Bumble. Which is why Bumble is helping to push laws that make cyber flashing a crime. The New York Times explains the term cyber flashing, quote, refers to the act of sending unwanted sexual images to another person through digital means on a dating app or social media platform, but also via text or another file sharing service such as AirDrop. Flashers, they used to leap out from behind trees, but now instead, or in addition to leaping out from behind trees or leering at women on subways, they're leaping out from behind online dating profiles and blank Instagram accounts and anonymous Twitter profiles. Before joining Bumble, Ehemi worked at the Pentagon and in Barack Obama's White House. So she's a player. She's a power. And she's already scored one victory, a law passed in Virginia that makes sending an unwanted lewd image a civil offense. The person who sends one can be fined $500 per image. And that money in the form of damages goes to the recipient who was annoyed or felt unsafe or just didn't want to see it. The sender is also on the hook for attorney fees and court costs, and those rack up quick. There are cyber-flashing bills moving through other states. Reading about this push to criminalize cyber-flashing reminded me of the time when, well, the time before there were any revenge porn laws on the books. The first law criminalizing revenge porn passed in New Jersey in 2004. Now there are revenge porn statutes on the books in 46 states. I supported those laws. I still do. I support revenge porn laws. I was stumping for them before the first one passed, and I will keep stumping for them until they're passed in all 50 states. Just four states left to go. Mississippi, Wyoming, South Carolina, and Massachusetts? What the fuck, Massachusetts? Just as I was for revenge porn laws, I'm for laws criminalizing cyber flashing. Because I have long believed that all dick pics should be solicited dick pics. And we obviously can't trust men. We can't trust hashtag all men with the technology that has made dick pic taking and disseminating so easy. But I got to say, reading about this law in Virginia and others like it moving through a few other states, seems like imposing fines for unsolicited dick pics and allowing recipients to sue for damages, that could be abused. I mean, when I just pause to consider the number of guys who've sent me unsolicited dick pics, which like most gay men, I absolutely do not mind, but I could be tempted to pretend to mind for $500 a dick. If these laws were retroactive, I could retire on that money. So once these laws pass in more states, which again, I think they should be passed in more states because I don't think men should be airdropping pornographic images to teenage girls on airplanes, which has happened. But after these laws are passed, guys, you're going to want proof that the dick pic you sent was solicited. Sending a dick pic after getting a verbal solicitation, that's going to carry some risk. Malicious dick pic prosecution could be a thing in our futures, thanks to the unsolicited dick pic senders out there who acted stupidly and or maliciously in sending all those unwanted lewd images. So guys, get those dick pic solicitations in the future in writing.
All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and joining us on the Magnum this week, Dr. Joe Court is here to talk about sides. You've heard of tops, you've heard of bottoms, you may not have heard of sides until today. Dr. Court also sticks around to take a couple of questions from my listeners. We talk about first loves and we talk about meeting sleazy versus meeting cute. All that coming up on today's show. And hey, there are lots of big prize celebrations in many parts of the country this weekend, including my hometown, Seattle, or my adopted hometown, Seattle. Love you, Chicago. Still my hometown. Have fun out there, everybody. Please be safe. Please take care of each other. All right, let's get to the show. Hi, Dan. I'm 33 years old, and I just started dating around a bit. I've never really dated before. I didn't have sex until I was like 29, and very much a late bloomer. I had a lot of body image issues. I'm living in a larger body. And I kind of had this weird belief that until I lost weight, I wouldn't be able to find anyone that was attracted to me that I was also attracted to. So I really held myself back. But your show has helped me and I've overcome that and I've put myself out there more. And I've been meeting guys that I really like. They're nice. We have a lot in common. I see long-term potential. But an issue I'm having is that I really hate kissing, like really hate it. I find it disgusting, off-putting. I really don't like it. And the guys I've been meeting have been very affectionate and they like to kiss. And I don't know if it's that I'm just meeting people who are bad at kissing or if it's just something I don't like. And my therapist told me that it's just because I haven't met the right person yet and that when I do, I'll like kissing. But I don't really think that's true. I really don't like it. I recently had sex with this guy that I really like, and we had good energy, and like I said, I see really good long-term potential, but he likes to kiss, and I really don't like it. I don't know what to do about that. I don't know if it's a me problem or a them problem or if it's just something that exists that I can't change, but I don't like it, and I don't want to do it again. I like sex. I like being intimate in other ways. I just really don't like kissing, and I don't know what to do about that. You don't like to kiss. Is that a me problem, a you problem, or is that a them problem? Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a problem, a you problem. It's definitely a you preference and potentially a problem. If a guy that you're with or want to be with really likes kissing, and it would be a problem for him to be in a relationship with someone who didn't want to kiss him, well, then it's a problem. But the only way to find out whether it's going to be a problem for some guy that you're dating, some guy that you're seeing, some guy that you're having sex with, is to put it out there. Put it on the table. Use your words. Look, like, eh, I don't know what it is. Maybe I just got a really late start sexually, romantically, but kissing kind of turns me off. Now, theoretically, arguably, the guy that wants to kiss you, wants to kiss you to not just, you know, pleasure himself, satisfy himself because he enjoys kissing, but also to, you know, crank you up to get you started. Kissing for a lot of people is an important form of foreplay. And if it's not something that's going to crank you up, if it's going to have the opposite effect, then he shouldn't want to do it. And if he's someone who really requires kissing, if it going without that kind of intimacy would negatively impact his quality of life, negatively impact his ability to connect with you romantically, sexually, well, then if you don't like kissing and aren't ever going to come around on kissing, 
you guys aren't right for each other. Not kissing, no kissing, no deep kissing, no French kissing, not even from the sound of things, a peck is a price of admission or several prices of admission that anybody that you're going to be with long-term is going to have to pay. And rather than enduring a lot of kissing the first time you fuck around to somebody and tiptoeing up to telling them about this, I feel like you should put this out there right away so that the next time you're intimate with somebody for the first time, their tongue isn't in your mouth so that you aren't setting expectations on in that person that, you know, kissing is something that you enjoy. So you're not just going along with kissing because it's expected of you. And then kissing becomes something that they're going to expect the next time you hook up. And eventually, you know, if you hook up with them again and again and again, before you tell them this truth about yourself, you're going to have to reset, roll back their expectations of what you're interested in and what you're capable of. So just, just put it out there. You know, you're talking with somebody, they're moving in for the kiss, like turn your head to the side, let them nuzzle your neck and tell them, whisper, say, look, I've just never really been into kissing. I'm into everything else, just not so much kissing. I promise you. Well, most guys, I don't know if I'd say most guys, many guys, certainly any guy that you would want to be with is going to be able to roll with that. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 29-year-old bisexual woman living in Southern California, and I ran into a little contradiction today on Ye Old Pornhub. So I'm into DDLG, Daddy Dom Little Girl. I'm the LG. I'm the little girl. I'm 29. Clearly, there's no children involved. Just like daddy doesn't mean my father. It's just terms. Anyways, I went on Pornhub, and I searched DDLG, and a warning page came up and it was like, don't cross the line from looking at consensual media about two consenting adults to looking at child sexual abuse material. And I was really taken aback because I was, I was just trying to find videos of adults who are into DDLG too, because that's what I'm into. Um, I mean, great that Pornhub is like trying to curb pedophiles, abusing children and spreading abuse material. But um, yeah, it was just like, why is my kink, DDLG, why does that trigger this warning sign when there's clearly no children involved? It's two consenting adults, and that's what I was after. And yet, when I went back to the Pornhub homepage, literally it was stepdad makes teen daughter fuck him was a video. What? That is incest and sounds coercive and rapey, illegal, illegal, double illegal. But obviously that video is allowed because the Pornhub, because the Pornhub mediators are like, clearly it's not an actual stepdad fucking his actual daughter. These are two actors from some random porn production company that is probably in the middle of Nevada. I'm just wondering why is my thing considered bad by Pornhub and Yet there's just teen, 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 teen everywhere, all over Pornhub. Teen sounds older than little girl. Little girl sounds like a child. But again, it's an age play thing. And adult women are being the little girl. Not so that this man can like pretend that he's fucking a child. I'm pretending to be like more childlike and innocent because it's like a dom sub thing. It's about like brattiness and power and, you know, discipline and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering, like, why, why does Pornhub draw the line there? 
when it's just a regular kink. Yes, DDLG, Dom Daddy, Little Girl, involves consenting adults engaged in a kind of power play, power exchange uh, around what they call age play. And that's fine, and that involves consenting adults. But you can see why Pornhub might throw that warning up, because as somebody who's out there who's interested in the same thing that you're interested in, DDLG role play involving consenting adults, is surfing around, is entering things into search engines on porn sites around the regular old internet, if they should happen to drop the DD, if they should wind up searching just little girl, they may stumble over porn, they may stumble over child sex abuse materials, pardon me, not pornography, that they weren't looking for, hopefully, that they weren't looking for. And I can see why Pornhub might want to send up a flare to somebody who might be that stupid, but also put that out there because there's a lot of people who are looking at porn sites and policing them for any sort of squicky missteps. Pornhub and other websites like it have come in for a lot of scrutiny from government officials, from federal agencies, Lately, and that Pornhub may be making a bit of a show of inoculating itself against charges that it is promoting uh, child sex abuse materials in allowing for people to post or porn companies to post DDLG films, pornography. Yeah, I can see why they may want to inoculate themselves against charges that they are hosting child sex abuse materials by flagging a search that some people who may not know what DDLG means and what this kind of age play is about might misunderstand or maliciously demagogue about. So I I fully support your kink. Your kink is not my kink. Your kink is okay. Your kink, DDLG, involves consenting adults engaging in age play. And that so long as it doesn't involve any minors, is fine. But yeah, there are some people out there who will weaponize your kink and then use it against, use the kink that they're weaponizing against websites like Pornhub and others. And so, huh? yeah, I think Pornhub's just making a little show of holding your kink with tongs because the LG thing the little girl thing, even though you know what that means, I know what that means, I hope my listeners know what that means, and that doesn't mean actual little girls, that means adult women using baby voices, adult women into age role play. Yeah, Pornhub's worried about people out there who don't know what that means, or who do know what that means, but are going to pretend that they don't. Hello, Dan. I'm calling with my tail between my legs I broke some cardinal savage rules and I really need your help. I am a 31-year-old female in the Midwest, married, love my husband so much. We've explored open relationships because of you and have been running into some turmoil because of me. I hooked up with a guy at our family vacation home and realized that's a huge no-no for my husband. We talked about it. I agreed not to do that anymore, but here we are. I ended up hooking up with a guy 
no excuses, just to put it in context and explain. I drank way too much in a hot tub after taking Adderall that day and I blacked out and I ended up having unprotected sex with a man. So two of our only rules are use a condom and not at the family house. And I have thrown those in the garbage. I am so embarrassed to admit all this to you because I know you're going to yell at me, but I deserve it. I guess my question is, how do we move on from this? My husband is heartbroken and it feels like we can't get on the same page about what to do. He keeps asking for progress, um, which I am reaching out to therapists and discussing, you know, couples therapy, which he's open to. And those are two things that are on the docket. But I would love to know your advice on what I can do now to ensure that he knows I am incredibly sorry other than apologizing verbally. Any tips or, you know, hand slaps that you can give me, I would love to get your advice on what to do from here. So you had there were two rules and you broke both of them. Rule number one, no unprotected sex with other people. Common rule in open relationships, perfectly reasonable rule in open relationships. Rule number two, stop fucking guys at the family vacation home. And that's exactly what you did. You went and fucked a guy at the family vacation home. You make a very short list of things you can do. You only have one item on that short list of things you can do to ensure this doesn't happen again and to win back your husband's trust. And it consists entirely of finding a couple's counselor. Noticeably absent, conspicuously absent from this list are the reasons you yourself cite, the circumstances you yourself cite that led up to you fucking this guy in the hot tub at your family home, your family vacation home, without using condoms. You took Adderall, you got drunk, you blacked out, had blackout sex with this guy in the hot tub at your family vacation home. All right, seems to me drugs and alcohol are the place you need to start. Seems to me that going to your husband and saying, I am not gonna be using Adderall ever again and I am not going to drink. Maybe not forever. Maybe you don't have to make that promise forever, but at least until you get your asses into couples counseling and figure this out. And, you know, the guy who fucked you when you were blackout drunk, that wasn't okay. That wasn't okay for him to do. If you were blackout drunk, you weren't able to consent in the moment. Now, a lot of people, when they are blackout drunk, particularly heavy drinkers, it's hard for someone else to tell that they are blackout drunk. A high-functioning alcoholic when blackout drunk seems to be fine. And so I don't want to call that guy a rapist necessarily, but this was definitely questionable on his part if indeed you were incapacitated by drugs and alcohol. But if you were in a blackout and high-functioning and it was impossible for him to tell, uh, then uh, my God, uh, I don't want to point a finger exclusively at you. It's not all on you, but Jesus Christ, lady, stop drinking, stop taking drugs, and no more going to the family vacation home alone. You, I don't want to say can't be trusted, like your husband can't trust you. You can't trust yourself with drugs, alcohol, 
hot tubs, other men, and the family vacation home. So all of those things, you got to take them off the table. All of those things you can't be alone with. You can't let yourself have right now or you're going to screw up your marriage. You're going to damage your marriage. You may sink your marriage. Ah, So, yeah, no booze, no drugs, no hot tubbing, no other men at the family home without your husband there, no unsupervised visits to the family home, no you being out of your husband's sight at the family home if there's somebody else there that you might want to fuck or have fucked. Yeah, yeah, all those things, all those things have to be on the list of changes that you are going to make and make right now to earn back your husband's trust. And lastly, I would add the thing that I really want you to drill down on when you get into couples counseling and individual counseling too, therapy might be a really good idea, is whether or not you can live with these rules, whether or not you can abide by these rules. I guess that's what I mean by live with them. Because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where what you really want to do is have complete sexual autonomy. You want to be able to have unprotected sex with other men whenever you want, wherever you want, including the family home. And then drugs and alcohol become your ticket. That if you're just fucked up enough, you can do these things that you want to do. It really, you can put yourself in a situation other people have, you can create a circumstance where it incentivizes getting fucked up on drugs and alcohol, if that's your ticket to freedom. If you can't abide by these rules, you shouldn't agree to abide by these rules. And if you can't abide by these rules, you're not going to be married to your husband for much longer. So you're going to have to really drill down with your therapist and figure out what it is you're capable of, what commitments you can keep. And don't make commitments that incentivize for you in some shitty alcoholic addict way, choosing drugs and alcohol over your husband and the promises that you've made him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something cis female living in Chicago. I have a weird situation that I need help parsing out. So I met this guy in Bumble a few weeks ago. We hit it off. On our second date, we ended up having sex. I eventually decided that I wasn't really interested in seeing him again, so I texted him to let him know that it was a nice meeting him, but I didn't want to take things any further. He was super nice about it, and he was like, no worries, wish you all the best, and then we stopped talking. A few days later, I received a message from an unknown number, um, or a number I didn't recognize, with a Chicago area code saying we met on the Sugar Baby website, and he was interested in spoiling me. At first, I thought it was probably a scam, but since it had a Chicago area code, I texted them back to let them know they had the wrong number. And then I got a response saying, you know, they're still interested in spoiling me, even though they know they texted the wrong person. So at this point, I was just like, what the fuck? Um, you don't even know who I am, what I look like. They asked for a picture. I was like, you send me one first. I was just kind of playing along. But then I received a picture of the guy I hooked up with from Bumble uh, like a week or so ago. And it really freaked me out. Nobody knows we hooked up. Nobody really even knows that I hung out with him. I told a couple of coworkers that I was like meeting up with someone after work, but I didn't give them any identifying details. So I screenshotted this conversation with the unknown number and I sent it to the Bumble guy saying, what the fuck is this? Is this you? He was like, that's a picture of me, but that's not me texting you that. And I asked him if he had any bitter exes, anyone who had access to his phone, anyone who, who he may have given my number out to. And he said, 
he would never do that. It's not him. He would never give out my number. And he's, he's sorry that happened. But I'm just trying to figure out what is going on here. Because I, I don't think it's likely that a random person texted me out of the blue and just happened to try to catfish me with a random photo from the internet that happened to be my hookup. So I just need some confirmation that like it's this guy trying to mess with me because who like else could it be? I tried to text the unknown number back. I never got a response. I also tried calling and the voicemail said it was a Google number, which I think anyone can create. I also tried looking up the number on one of those reverse lookup sites and I didn't really find any names that meant anything to me. I'm new in Chicago. I don't really know that many people yet. I don't really think this is anyone in my my very small social circle in my new city, like trying to pull a prank on me. I haven't heard anything from either person in the days since that happened a few days ago, but I'm just hoping you can kind of help me shed some light on this. Maybe your listeners can help shed some light. I feel like I'm going crazy a little bit because I want to believe this guy that it's not him. What seems likelier? There's some elaborate conspiracy on the part of you don't know who to gaslight you, to drive you crazy. And somehow this person who is unknown to you and unknown to this guy that you hooked up with managed to get your phone number, managed to get his photograph, knew you hooked up with this near stranger and then sent you that. No, that is not what happened. Let's just Occam's razor at this. He hooked up with you. He had your phone number on his phone. He hadn't saved it, so it didn't have a name attached to it. And he had another phone number on his phone. And he sent that, I want to be your sugar daddy, text message to someone else or meant to send it to someone else that he had been texting with, whose number he got from some sugar baby site and also didn't save with a name or an identifier. And he just mixed up those two numbers And you wrote back to him and said, who are you? Send me a photograph. And he did. And it was that guy. And he didn't mean for that photo or those text messages about being his sugar baby to come to you. Or maybe he did. You told him you weren't interested in hooking up again. And then he proposed this sugar baby arrangement. But I think it's likelier a mix up. In addition to cruising around on Bumble, hooking up with women, he's cruising around on some sugar baby sites and looking for a sugar baby that he can spoil. And he mixed up your phone number with somebody else's phone number and sent a text to you that he meant to send to some other woman. Don't waste another precious moment worrying about this. Block his number. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about uh, something I love, gay people, gay sex. A significant percentage of gay men, probably as high as 30%, never engage in anal intercourse. And yet somehow anal intercourse has come to define gay sex. When you say gay sex to someone, gay or straight, they think anal. Just like when you say straight sex to someone, gay or straight, they think vaginal. Straight sex, P-I-V, gay sex, P-I-B, penis and bud. But anal sex is less common than you might think, and many gay men might assume. And here to talk about that and talk about a new term that he's been working hard to get people to start using, and he recently had a big success, Dr. Joe Court, sex and relationship therapist in Detroit, Michigan, director of the Center for Relationship and Sexual Health, author of four books on male sexuality. Dr. Court, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me, Dan. So I've been campaigning of late to get pegging into the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, So as one neologist to another, mad props because you just got an important new word 
into an important new place. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it still feels surreal to me that it's happened. I mean, I wrote about it in 2013, but I've been talking about it since, I don't know, well, my whole life, I never had a word for it because I'm a side. But um, in 2012, or, or no, sorry, 2010-ish, I, talked to, I was talking to friends about it. I'm not a top, I'm not a bottom. And I jokingly said, I'm a side. And um, I, I laughed, they laughed, and then I thought, why is that funny? Why, why can't side be the word? Sides be the word for what? What are we talking about here? So for gay men that don't enjoy nor engage in any kind of anal intercourse or penetration. Aside. And so many gay men, tops, bottoms, verse, those are the terms that many gay men embrace to, it, they're not identities, but they're a shorthand that, that gay men use to communicate their preferred role. And it really does frame everyone as one or the other or both. And there wasn't a word for neither until you came up with side. Yeah. And on the men that, that contacted me, I wrote an article in 2013 in Huffington Post. And then I started getting all these emails. And then I started a Facebook group. And all these men are very lonely because there's such a push for topping and bottoming in the gay male community. Mm-hmm. It's funny because uh, that stat, 25 to 30% of gay men never engage in anal intercourse. I've been tossing that around in my column, on my podcast for decades. So it's not like this is something that I, people don't know or shouldn't know or shouldn't remember by now. It, it kind of, it strikes me as sad, but also a little crazy that there are so many gay men out there who are not into anal who think they're the only one. Right. And that's such a good point. It has been around forever, but nobody was willing to say, I am this, because when you do, people say, oh, you're still a virgin. Oh, you haven't met the right guy. Like some people used to say to lesbians, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, you just haven't done it right. And what kind of trauma have you had? And sometimes these are the cases. But for the most part, that's not the case. I'm not a boyish, immature, sexual person. I'm just a side. I don't like and then they say, well, what do you do? Like, oh my God, well, what else is there to do? There's a million other things to do. Are you crazy? Mutual masturbation and oral sex, top of the list. Hand jobs, master, yes, masturbation, um, fraudage, uh, oral. I mean, there's so much kinky, you know, mm-hmm. fetish stuff. And they just ignore that because there's this heteronormative thinking in the gay community, which is there has to be a top and a bottom. You know, uh, this was this kind of heteronormative thinking, this sort of equivalency drawn between anal and vaginal as defining sex acts for gay and straight people. That wasn't so common when I was young and coming out. I think that kind of crept in to gay consciousness during the HIV AIDS epidemic when there was this massive push to get guys to use condoms for anal sex to save their lives and the lives of their partners. It was a very important push. But it also kind of put into the heads of people who are just entering the community that anal was what gay guys did. And, you know, it was when I was a teenager, that was an insult straight people lobbed at us. We were all boofooers. That was what people said on the north side of Chicago when I was in <laughs> middle school. Boofoo. What that was a gay guy, a butt fucker. But that wasn't my reality when I came out. Most of the guys, you know, I always talk about the four magic words. Two guys are going to go to bed together for the first time. Somebody says, what are you into? And that's so empowering because you can rule anything in and anything out. And often what you heard or said at that moment when someone said, what are you into? It was like, I'm not, um, I'm not into anal. And it wasn't like, that doesn't mean I don't want to have sex. That means there's all sorts of other sex that I'm up for. Just not for that. Maybe not tonight, but in a lot of guys' cases, maybe not ever. I'm, I agree with you, and I do agree that, because we're around the same age, that I, it wasn't so heavy back then that it is now anal sex. 
And the loneliness from these guys is because they get, um, and they will, in Facebook groups, they'll sometimes post what people say, not their handles, but they'll say, you know, people are mean to them. What do you mean you're not? You're, you're boring. Yawn city. Um, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with you. So they feel like finding a boyfriend in the gay male community is already hard. And this makes it even harder for many sides. Well, gay guys are like, you know, it's hard to put a percentage on it, like three, seven percent of men. And, but if you're talking about 30% of that three to 7%, you have options out there. If you're a side, you have an easier time. If you're a side and you want a partner who never wants to have anal sex, finding the right guy than if you were, you know, into some kinds of different kinks where guys still successfully find partners. So it shouldn't be so dire an outlook. But I think what's so important about what you've done with this word, popularizing this term, is it's a positive identification. It's not not into anal. It's not I'm not a top, not a bottom, not verse. It's something positive. It's an it's a positive identity. Thank you. And that's exactly why we needed the word and why it's so important that Grinder accepted this word, because um, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Get rid of the pathology and feel proud of yourself for whatever you're into. It's your erotic preference. It's no different than top or bottom. We're burying the lead here a little bit. Grinder just added side to its list of preferred sex roles or positions. That just happened in the last couple of weeks. It did. And today there's like all this the, the article about it and introducing it. And I couldn't be prouder. It's really, I think, my proudest professional moment that this happened and that they accepted this. It's just, it's unbelievable. Were you lobbying Grinder? Yes. Um, there were men that there was a petition going around and being signed and urging them to do this. So I wasn't alone. There were people way around me doing all this work to say to Grinder and Scruff and all the other ones, you know, please add us because we exist and we want to, we, we want to be able to sort through and not always be, you know, and even tops and bottoms say, it, I've seen this on, on the internet. Now I don't have to sort through that. If I don't want someone who doesn't like this, I can, you know, weed them out, which is great. It is great. You cite in one of your articles a stat, 25,000 gay and bi men were surveyed, and only a tiny, well, not a tiny, a significant percentage, but a minority of them, only roughly, I think it was 35, 37%, reported having anal sex the last time they had sex with a man, which really, I think, would challenge a lot of assumptions that people, gay and straight and bi, would make about two men going to bed together for the first time or for the 40th time. It's so true. And I always tell my gay male clients this. They're always referring to the visible gay community. The visible gay community is really like the, so, the social media visibility. Is that really real life? Or is that what people, that's the, the stereotype that floats to the top? Or it's not necessarily reflective of the community as a whole, I don't think. <laughs> I, I, I'm so juvenile. You just said the community as a whole. And we're trying to get away from identifying the community <laughs> as a series of holes here. Um, it's important to emphasize though, that, you know, I'm into anal, you're not into anal, I'm into anal penetration. But most of the time when I have sex, that's not what's happening. Because most of the sex and, and I encourage my listeners gay and straight and bi to have broad definitions of sex, the more that counts, the more sex you're going to have. So when I don't have anal sex in an encounter, I don't feel like I didn't have sex. I don't feel like oral or mutual masturbation or fantasy play or fetage or whatever else is a sad consolation prize. I think it's sex. So in that study of the 25,000 gay and bi men, it's not that 35 plus percent of them are sides. It's that many of those men, the last time they had sex, even if they're into anal, aren't going to have anal that night because they weren't ready, they weren't prepped, they didn't feel comfortable, or they just weren't 
up for it that night for whatever reason. So in the same way that you can identify as a top, identify as a bottom, or you can say, I topped or I bottomed, those of us who don't have anal every time we have sex can still embrace the term and say, last night I, I was a side. I love that. And you know what I wish for and hope for is that straight people pick this up too, because there's a lot of men that have erectile problems, women that have vaginal pain, whatever it is, that they too could feel complete and feel whole, I guess I'm saying that again, when they feel um, that they're not having intercourse. Intercourse is not the only way to have sex. Absolutely. We do need right now, though, to give permission to the very sensitive, very considerate, thoughtful um, listeners who are straight that I have out there who are going to worry that if they use top or bottom or side that they're appropriating those terms. Top or bottom means like the active or passive participant in penetrative sex. You can be an oral top, an anal top, an oral bottom, an anal bottom. I think straight people shouldn't be self-conscious about embracing the terms top, bottom, and side. Not at all. I, I, I hope they do. I hope because it is, like you said, depathologizing. And more straight people should identify as verse, which means the dude's getting fucked every once in a while, too. Right. Sometimes the dude's the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> How big an issue is shame for guys who aren't into anal, aren't tops, aren't bottoms, aren't verse? It's the number one issue for sides, I think. For people that don't engage in anal sex, they, they tell me I get all these emails in my Facebook group. They're constantly talking about how ashamed they feel because when they show up as one or talk about it, they get criticized and judged negatively. By other gay men. Oh, God, yes. Gay men are so critical of guys <laughs> that don't um, engage in penetration. It, 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 it kind of blows my mind that gay men can be that critical because there's two things in conflict here. For some gay men, there's so much shame attached to anal sex because of the stigma around being penetrated, taking on, you know, quote unquote, the feminine role in sex or the, you know, the poop stigma that for a lot of gay men, there's a lot of shame and stigma in having anal sex, anal sex that they enjoy. And yet on the flip side, there are these gay men who feel shamed by other gay men that they're not having anal sex. Yeah, I know. It's on both sides. And it is shocking. I have to say, even at 59 years old, it is shocking that gay men, even the younger gay men, are so critical of diversity. I really thought, I honestly got thought that this generation would be different, but they're not. Well, there does seem to be a kind of norm that I think younger gay men need to question, where they have to hew to an identity as a top or a bottom you know, are they, do they have a bussy or a pussy? <laughs> and that that is something that they have to sort out for themselves to be admitted into gay communities, to be a, you know, grown up gay man. And we need to push back against that and say, yeah, no, not necessarily. And I'm, re I don't think I would be alive now in 57 years old in a gay man if my sexual identity revolved around anal intercourse when I was first coming out because I came out into the AIDS epidemic. And that was a time when we were encouraged to explore outer course, to regard uh, mutual masturbation as sex, um, to maybe have oral, you know, in me, not on me was a safe sex slogan that I encountered when I first got to college as a teenager. And I felt very free to explore my sexuality without anal intercourse and douching and poppers being at the center of it. Not that I didn't also 
do anal with guys I felt good and trusted and, and wanted to explore that with. I did, but it just wasn't everything in the way it seems to be to so many gay men now. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me because of my age and the AIDS crisis, did, are you aside because of that? And I say, no, AIDS was horrible. It was a horrible thing to go through, the whole crisis. But yeah, I remember being 11 and 12 and none of my fantasies, and that was 1977, 78, none of my fantasies included anal sex ever. So it wasn't re- a result of anything outside of me. It was just inside. So Joe, while we have you on the phone, will you take a couple of listener questions with me about gay shit? I mean, from gay men, not about gay shit, from gay men, gay questions. I'd be happy to. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. When I was 21, I started dating this guy long distance. He was everything I hoped to find in a person. And we finally met up and dated a couple weeks and finally decided to have sex. I was assured he was clean, but after a few sex sessions, the condom broke and he told me he lied about he was clean and he had herpes. Since I was young and dumb, I felt like I was trapped in a relatively obligated to be in a relationship with him. I looked past his lie and dated him for three years and slowly fell in love. We had a really bad falling out after a lot of awful things he did to me and we broke up two years ago. Since then, he has regretted it and propositioned getting back together multiple times each month since I turned him down and I turn him down each time. I love him, but I don't trust him and he assures he's an entirely new person these days. My question is, should I pursue a relationship with this person because I do still love them? but we have an entire carriage of baggage to work through, or should I firmly stick to my nose and leave it where it is? Secondly, how does someone with herpes re-enter the dating scene? I've always had this idea that now that I'm sick, I'm no longer desired by anyone and I'm doomed to be single for the rest of my life. I just don't know how to admit to others and get back out there without being shamed because our community can end up being very discriminative towards us. Well, the first thing we have to push back against here is the idea that people who have sexually transmitted infections are unclean. I agree with you. That was my first red flag from this guy. And then calling himself sick on top of it. Yeah. Herpes in the lives of most people who have it is not that big a deal. There's medications that caller you can get on that suppress outbreaks and make you much less infectious. Most people have herpes, don't know they have herpes. So it's often the case that somebody who's doing the right thing and disclosing is being judged, shamed, and occasionally rejected by someone who also has herpes and just doesn't know it. I do think disclosing is the right thing to do, but it's not that big a deal. That wasn't the question, though. The question was, should he take this guy back? No, not at all. It's not about it's staying strong to not take him back. But, you know, recognize he lied to you and then he transmitted an STI to you. And then you're thinking of taking him back. How do you know that's never going to happen again? Unless you do. I don't even know what kind of work you would be able to do to ever retrust. Yeah. And, and it, this your ex's behavior since breaking up with him is evidence that he doesn't respect you, respect your boundaries. He's been calling you multiple times a month since you told him it was over to demand you take him back. The only ex you should ever consider taking back is the ex who communicated to you that they would like to continue seeing you and then fucked off and then stopped pestering you, respected you enough to take no for an answer and went away. You know, the ball in your court. I think if somebody breaks you and you want to stay together, get back together, you're allowed to say that. But if the answer is no, that doesn't mean ask again four times this month for two years. That means... Fuck off. Right. And I wonder why this caller has such a high tolerance for betrayal. That's a high tolerance. Because to me, most people would say, I'm not going to do this. This is one, two, three. And it's not even like the guy said, oh, my God, I did this before you find out. Let me tell you. That would even be different. But he didn't. Yeah. 
The, and to get back together with somebody because you feel like a diseased pariah, because you have a really common sexually transmitted infections that millions of people have, that's a terrible reason. That's not going to be a good foundation in which to build a relationship. Better to be celibate or alone than to be in a relationship where you just felt like, well, I have no other choice because you ruined me. So I'm going to allow you to inflict yourself on me forever. Yeah, no, no. Uh, so there are websites for people with herpes that can meet other people that have herpes if he wants. But the other thing I always tell clients is we all have a little secret about ourselves that we think a partner's not going to be okay with. It's bigger or little. So some people have smaller penises. Some people are kinky. Some people have fetishes. Some people don't. They have such pain that they can't do certain things. So we all have to confess at some point, this is your confession. Some people are sides. Right. Right. Some people are sides and that. That's a horrible thing for a lot of people to feel. It's only because they get rejected so much. But my whole work, as we've been talking about, is don't feel ashamed of this. It, claim it. It's yours. Own yeah, it. and as I often say, like a disclosure like this, that you have a kink, that you have herpes, um, whatever, is a sorting hat. You're telling somebody one thing about you. They're telling you everything about them in their reaction. You know, anybody who freaks out if you tell them that you have herpes and that, you know, your outbreaks are under control and you're on meds and you wanted to tell them because you wanted to disclose and you respect them. Anybody who reacts badly to that is not somebody you want to be with. It's somebody you want out of your life. And they've just, by rejecting you, done you the favor of exiting your life. Right. Just like your, your boyfriend did. So think of yeah, it that way. Yeah. Stop taking his calls. And any ex who's calling you for three, four times a month, asking you to get back together is an ex whose number needs to be blocked. All right. One more call. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 28 year old gay man. So about um, five years ago, I was 23. I started seeing someone for the very first time. I was a late bloomer. Um, he was my first love. <laughs> My first kiss, my fir the first person I told I was gay, first almost everything. And it was amazing for me. The connection, the conversation, just the time spent together. But four months after that, um, he dumped me because according to him, we were better friends than anything else. That was my first heartbreak. And as you can imagine, it was quite painful. <laughs> and I was living in London at the time and all that rain and gloom made everything extra dramatic. But with a few years, I got over it. And I know I'm over it because um, I just found out through mutual friends that he's seen someone else and it's so serious that they've moved in together. And I don't feel any type of way about it. I'm not sad. I'm not hurt. I'm not angry. I'm just like, okay. But the thing is, I still think about him all the time. He's on my mind at least three, four times a day, every day for the past five years. And I just think things like, oh, I wonder where he is. I wonder what he's doing. You know, just memories, things like that. And I would rather not think about him that much, maybe once a year, if even that. Um, is this how the rest of my life is going to be? I mean, and I'm very aware that maybe this is because I've dated absolute trash since him, you know, um, guys who will catfish you, guys who ghost you, guys who use you for money, you know, guys who say cruel things just for the fun of it. Absolute trash, bottom of the barrel guys. And I'm probably like drawing comparisons between him and them. But is this normal? Does your first love just have permanent real estate in your mind? Do you still think about your first love, Joe? 
I am with my first love. So I do. (laughs) I know I never had anybody before. But I'm telling you, I know that people do always think about their first love because that was your first experience. That was your first physiological and psychological novel experience. Yeah, I still think about, you know, I had a couple of boyfriends before my first love. I, I think about my first love all the time. And I'm really grateful to be in relationships, plural now, with, you know, guys that I can sometimes bring up my first love with and talk about how important he was to me and how much I loved and still do love him. And I think it's good that your first love still has real estate in your heart. And that is kind of wonderful and touching. And you should find a guy who isn't threatened by that. Right. And it may not be anything to do with the guy, right? So that's our first hit of phenylethylamine, dopamine, uh, adrenaline, and it's at its heightened state when we first fall in love. So most people say that they feel they never got over that person, but it isn't the person. They never got over the experience. Yes. Yeah, I think that you've got all the medical jargon. I I sum all that like dopamine and stuff up as you imprinted like a duckling. You (laughs) think you imprinted like a duckling on the guy, but you imprinted like a duckling on the feelings that that guy stirred up in you. That's inside you. Your capacity to feel those things didn't leave you when he left you. And that, you know, in a few years, you haven't met a guy that you felt as strongly about, or, you know, you've had relationships that came to shit, which most relationships do. You know, we're in a lot of relationships. We're not in a lot of lifelong relationships. Not all of us are as lucky as Dr. Court here. You you don't have to round them all up to monsters because they ended unless they were monsters, in which case you can call them that. But somebody else will come along and it'll be good for a weekend or a month or a summer or a year or all your life. And they will stir up these feelings in you again. And I love what you're saying. It's okay to have real estate like that in your mind because that means you can love. That means you have the capacity and you'll do it again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love love and I have, <laughs> this sounds so corny, um, you know, in addition to, you know, my first real love, my college boyfriend who sadly uh, was lost to HIV AIDS, um, there are guys I was with for a weekend that I still remember fondly and think, you know, if circumstances have been different, Maybe we would have wound up together. I, I, and I love hearing about my my husband's ex-boyfriends uh, or current boyfriend. And, and it, like lo, lo, lots of love is great. So don't feel like you have to extinguish your feelings for your first boyfriend so that you can then be ready for your next boyfriend or a more serious boyfriend or a more lasting love. I like that. And I'd say don't look at it as a curse. It's a blessing. It is a blessing. It is a blessing. Even if it ended. Uh, it can be a blessing. I hate it when people feel like if a relationship ended, it failed. If you were with somebody for four months, you loved them and you have fond memories of them in that relationship, that was a success. And it tells a good story about you. A very good story about him. Now I'm curious, can I ask you a couple personal questions? Yeah. You're with the first guy you ever dated or ever slept with? Ever? No, I dated lots and lots of guys and slept with lots and lots of guys, but I never fell in love like I did with Mike, ever. Oh, wow. How did you How did you and Mike meet? We met at the Gay Community Center here, what well, was Gay Community back then, the LGBT Community Center here, and he actually pursued me. I was not very pursued back then by guys, but he pursued me, and I started to be drawn back to him, and it was like, it just happened really quickly. Oh, my God. That's How long have you been together? That's wonderful. 29 years. 
Ah, 29 years. I was, I mean, I have to just, you know, I have to be honest about my bias. I was sort of hoping you had a sleazy meeting story because I love a good sleazy meeting story. <laughs> uh, but you got a, you have a more wholesome meeting story. We do have a very wholesome. Now, it doesn't mean I can't be sleazy and that I'm not sleazy with other people. I'm just not sleazy with him. <laughs> what, uh, just like as a general thing, I, I love sleazy meeting stories because so many people out there think if you met somebody and it was sleazy, that's not somebody that you can date because they were doing that sleazy thing that you were also doing. You think you're dateable, but that person's not dateable because they were at the bathhouse or they were at, you know, they hooked up with you on Grindr. Therefore, they're not relationship material, but you are somehow still relationship material. <laughs> And, so and I think people who have sleazy meeting stories need to be honest about them. And often, you know, what we hear are the friends and family versions of meetings, the sanitized versions. Oh, we met through friends. We met at a party. And, you know, the friend who introduced you was, you know, somebody you're having a three-way with. The party was a sex club. And <laughs> we should be honest about that. But also, I want to make space on my show for the wholesome meeting stories because those can work out, too, as yours did. I love that you're saying this. Thank you. And I love it because I've said the exact same thing. I've been saying it since the 90s. If you met in a, like, why as gay men are we hiding how we met if you met in a rest area back then or at a park or the bathhouse? So what? I, I think gay people are generally more honest about their sleazy meetings than straight people. You know, if your grandparents met at an orgy, they probably never told you. <laughs> and you'd probably never wanted to know. Um, but some of the first gay couples I met when I came out were like, yeah, we met at the bathhouse. Yeah, we met in the bushes. Um, and then ran into each other in a diner like an hour later. And, and I guess I imprinted like a duckling on those stories that I heard from the first gay couples, uh, long-term gay couples, guys then in 1980 who'd been together for 30 years shared with me their sleazy meeting stories. So when I met somebody sleazy, I was like, this could be my boyfriend. I wasn't <laughs> like, this is a dirty pig and I can't talk to this guy ever again because he's a slut. I would have partnered with some of those sleazy guys I met, but that didn't happen. I fell in love with Mike. Oh, well, good for you. Good for Mike. Thank you for coming on the show. Congratulations again on uh, getting sides onto Grinder. I think that's really important. It's kind of like pegging, uh, the word I invented, or my readers invented for a woman fucking man on the ass of the strap on dildo. It's a thing that had to explain it took a lot, a lot of words, a lot of verbiage, a lot of real estate. And it was just easier with one word that meant that thing. And, you know, guys who were sides had to, like, spend a long time explaining themselves as, you know, I'm a gay man, but I'm not into anal sex, receptive or, or, or active, and I've never really been into it, but it doesn't mean I'm into it. Like, it took so much, so much. You had to run your mouth for a long time if you were a side to explain who you were and what that meant. And it's really wonderful that you've worked so hard to create a term that's a positive identity, but also is simple. Thank you. I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm really proud of all the men behind me that, uh, and no pun intended, there's so many puns, <laughs> but all the men behind me that helped me get this out there. Okay. Where can people who are curious about sides or who identify as sides, or maybe just started identifying as sides after hearing you and me talk about it, where can they go online to find more community support information? So I have a Facebook group. It's private. So when you join, you have to agree to all the rules. It's side guide. Um, I don't know. The, it's just Facebook. And if you put inside guys, you'll see it and my name's on it and you can uh, ask for entry and we let you in. Dr. Joe Court, you can find him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok, where he has more than 500,000 followers. He talks about sex and relationship topics on all those platforms. He's at Dr. D.R. Joe Court, Court spelled K-O-R-T. Dr. Joe Court, thank you so much. I've known of you for years. It was great to finally get to speak with you. Thank you, Dan Savage. I really appreciate it. 
Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old heterosexual woman living in the Bay Area, and I'm calling not about myself, but about my dad and this issue that I have where he keeps reaching out to me for relationship advice. So to give you a little bit of background information, my parents got divorced when I was 11, and then from the time I was 11 until about 23. Three, my dad dated this woman who basically helped raise us. But at the same time, they did not have a healthy relationship. They were constantly breaking up. I would say they broke up close to 15 times in the course of their 12-year relationship. One time they even broke up two weeks before they were about to get married. My dad called off the wedding. So my dad does not have a very healthy uh, history with relationships. Fast forward to 2019, he meets this new woman, and at first, everything is great with her. Um, They get along really well. They have a lot of the same hobbies and interests, but soon after they start dating, things start to get weird and not in a good way. She starts to become controlling and obsessive, and they start breaking up all the time over stupid things. Like one time they broke up because my dad was texting a guy friend about playing the guitar and she accused my dad of being gay and being in love with his friend and not wanting her. It's been extensive and I would say in three years it's been at least 10 times if not close to 15. It's it's quite ridiculous at this at this point and every time they break up he calls me and asks for help and advice and I think he calls me because I have a pretty strong relationship with my husband. We've been together for almost 14 years And I think my dad looks up to that. And so he always calls me for help. And I kind of listen and parrot your advice and tell him, you know, he needs to focus on himself. He needs to get into therapy because he keeps going back to her. And he needs to fuck other people. Like, he needs to get under other people to get over her. And when he gets lonely, instead of going back to her, he needs to get on the apps. Uh, He's really into dancing. He needs to go out dancing and meet new people, but to stop going back to these people he's familiar with. And speaking of people he's familiar with, their most recent fight and breakup was because my dad talked to the woman, his ex-girlfriend, who helped raise us. He needs therapy. Clearly, his new girlfriend needs therapy and has a lot of things to work through, and he's not responsible for her mental health, but she needs therapy too. So I'm really at my wit's end, and I think I'm calling because I'm asking for your help. I've told my dad to break up with her already. Maybe I need to tell her to stay the fuck broken up with her already. I don't know. Maybe you need a new acronym, not just break the fuck up already. But once you break up, stay fucking broken up and stop getting back together. I was hoping maybe you might call my dad um, if you would like to call him and tell him not just to break the fuck up with her already, but to get into therapy and stay the fuck broken up with her and maybe fuck some other people while he's at it. His phone number is... I'm not going to call your dad. Look, if you don't want to talk to your dad about this shit, you should stop talking to your dad about this shit. Stop indulging him. I don't think it's a coincidence that his, I assume, relationship with your mother involved a lot of drama and at least one big breakup that led to a divorce, but that his subsequent relationship, the woman he was with for a dozen years, they broke up 15 times. That means they broke up while she was helping raise you more than once a year. And now he's with a woman who breaks up with him constantly, who sounds a bit like a a nut. And I don't think it's a coincidence that your dad keeps 
getting into these high conflict, high drama relationships. I think it's what your dad wants. And so when he calls you and thinks it's an all hands on deck, everyone must pay attention to him moment when he gets dumped again by the crazy person he's dating now, you don't have to show up for that. I mean, you have to take your dad's call, I guess, but you don't have to give him any advice. All you have to say is, dad, I want to talk about this. You know what you need to do. And uh, this must be what you want. You want this kind of loopy drama, but I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to hear about it. It's boring. You know, in all honesty, I was bored after a while listening to you recount your dad's relationship history. It's tedious. And you're allowed to tell your dad, look, I'm bored. I'm done with this. I'm done listening to you complain about this. This must be what you want. And since it's what you want, eat it, have it, deal with it. But don't come running to me every time what it is that clearly you want out of relationships, you're getting out of relationships because I'm done repeating myself to you. You know what I think you need to do. You know what I'm going to tell you. So let's skip the conversation about it. Don't call me. Don't call me about this shit. And when he calls you about this shit, change the subject or hang the fuck up. You can hang up on a relative. You can hang up on your dad. Look, if somebody's in a burning building, you can stand under the burning building and and scream jump. But if they jump and then they rush back into that burning building, you're not obligated to stand under that burning building and scream jump to that person. The 14th time they've run back into that same goddamned burning building, you're allowed to prioritize everything else it is about your life that you need to take care of for yourself and for people who actually listen to you when you give them advice. And yeah, again, I don't, I'm not going to call your dad. Your dad hasn't listened to you. Your dad's not going to listen to me. Your dad is going to love getting a call from me because I think all of this is attention seeking behavior on the part of your dad. There are people out there who think drama and breakups and getting back together again, that all of these things mean that the relationship is passionate. There are people out there who think drama is passion. Sometimes people get into therapy and they work through and get past that. But at this stage, I think it's too late for your dad. I don't think therapy, if he ever got into it, is going to help him. I think he's probably run out the clock on the therapy. Maybe if he'd gotten into therapy in his 30s or 40s, a good therapist could have helped him with this. But it's too late, and you don't have to be his therapist, and neither do I. Hi, Dan. I'm a 39-year-old trans woman in the Northeast. And I only started transitioning um, and being open about a year ago. Since I've started transitioning, you know, in the last six months, things have just gotten so ugly. I feel like every time I turn on the news or hear a politician or just almost anyone speaking, it's really been hard to hear just how cruel people can be, how much misunderstanding and hatred And I just don't feel like my previous life hidden as a a white cishet male 
uh, prepared me in, in almost any way to be able to handle hearing, you know, even a, a former president uh, mock you and your community when you struggle so much. And I was wondering, what would you recommend? What are what are certain ways that over the decades you've sort of dealt with, processed, just open hate speech, been able to either shrug it off or fight against it? What would you recommend in being able to deal with it so that it, it not only doesn't get you down throughout the day, but that you feel like you can perhaps do something positive to fight against it? Welcome out. Welcome to the rest of your queer life. I don't mean that to sound dark, not like welcome to the shit show and people are going to be mean to you and horrible to you, but it's wonderful that you have found in yourself the courage to take this enormous step, to come out, to transition. Congratulations. That really speaks well to your strength of character, your inner strength. So many people who are trans really struggle alone with that for years and years and years before finally coming out and knowing that that coming out as trans is going to be hugely consequential. I want to share with you a few of the things that I learned about coming out as a gay man, which is different than coming out as a trans woman, I realize, but I think these things apply. When you first come out, the bad all comes at once. When you first come out, having to deal with your family, you know, losing friends, getting the rude and awful questions from the ignorant people in your life that you need to educate, all of that comes crashing down at you all at once. It really falls on you all at once. And it takes time for the good to accrue, for the people you're going to meet, the places you're going to go, the experiences you're going to have now that you are out as yourself the good comes in time and the bad, the bad when you come out seems to hit you immediately. And one of the things that can be bad or hard when you first come out that hits you immediately is you suddenly become very attuned to the shit people are saying about you that A is a lie and you know isn't true, but that you are going to have to deal with and have to confront. And uh, sometimes I feel like I was lucky and maybe I'm not the best person for you to put this question to because when I first came out, I really met two kinds of gay guys. I met guys who thought there was something wrong with them and I met guys who thought there was something wrong with everybody else. I was luckily in the latter camp. I didn't think I was sick or sinful or twisted. I didn't believe anything that I had been told by my parents, by my church, by every politician, every elected official in the country <laughs> I looked at all that and said, yeah, that, that they're wrong. I'm fine. I'm not crazy. They are. That's what you got to do. You're not crazy. The haters are. And often the haters are people who are, as I like to say, particularly when it comes to gay stuff, to homophobes, these are people externalizing an internal conflict and taking it out on us, taking it out on you. I'm not saying that because you have to pity that person. You can be angry at that person. But you shouldn't take that crap too personally. And yeah, like I was saying earlier, like the, the shit comes all at once when you come out, the bad stuff comes all at once and you suddenly develop this sixth sense about when people are being shitty or homophobic or biphobic or transphobic. And you have to remember that the good comes in time, 
But one of the things that makes putting up with all of that shit worthwhile is it is the good. And so what you want to do is kind of rush at the good, lean into the good. An expression you see a lot of people use these days on social media is the importance of queer joy. It is really important for you to focus on your joy in being out and who you are now and being able to move authentically through the rest of your life and have relationships with people who know and love you for who you really are and to celebrate that. And that doesn't mean you just sit around with people and strategize about how to fight the bigots and fight back and secure your civil rights. That means you make dinner, go to the movies, hang out, go to the park. That means you do things that aren't just sitting around, taking in the shit, dealing with the shit, pushing back against the shit, arguing with the shit. Find some people who agree with you, love you, see through the bullshit. Don't think there's anything wrong with you or them and do other stuff. Focus on other stuff. Create in your life queer joy. It's important not to be complacent. We have to fight back. We seem to be careening into a very dark moment for LGBT people in this country. Demagogues have seized on us again. And what are we going to do? We're going to fight back and we're going to win. And things get shitty. Things get ugly. The Briggs Initiative, uh, there were pushes in the West Coast to amend state constitutions to destroy gay rights in the 90s, uh, Lon May Bond, Measure 9 in Oregon, we fought back, we won. The, the HIV AIDS epidemic, the anti-marriage amendments to the Constitution. Yeah, things can get ugly. How do things get better? We fight back. So I'm not saying, you know, run off, focus on your queer joy, block out the news, but regulate your intake. It's okay to regulate your intake of the news. It's okay if you're having a dinner party with some of your queer friends, people with whom you experience queer joy, create queer joy to say, you know, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to play a board game. We're going to watch a movie we all like. We're going to go out to a club or a bar and dance. And we're not, we're going to live our queer lives. And we're going to assert our right to live these queer lives. We're going to create queer spaces and experience joy in those spaces Used to be those spaces were very small. Used to be those spaces were bars and bathhouses uh, and you know certain kinds of clubs. And we pushed those spaces out until they felt like they were whole cities were places where we could experience queer joy. Well, let's hold those cities. Let's hold those spaces. Let's enjoy those spaces. Let's be ourselves in those spaces. Let's go to the demos. Let's write the checks. Let's argue with the bigots on social media elsewhere. Let's vote against the politicians who are demagoguing about us. Let's talk to our families. It's so important to talk to our families about not voting for people who hate us or would seek to harm us. And also the reward, the payoff for you being yourself, for coming out, being who you really are, are the relationships, the connections that you're going to have going forward with people who love you and celebrate you for you. And it is okay when you are with those people, when you are in a queer space that you've created in your apartment or in a club or a coffee shop or a whole city for you to relax and enjoy that hard-won space, that benefit 
that capacity, that, that, that opportunity for creating, experiencing, allowing for queer joy, even as we deal with the onslaught, even as we push back against it. That's my advice to you. Really, really, really not compartmentalize, not be complacent, but regulate, regulate your intake of the news and make a decision, an active choice at times just to relax and enjoy. And one of the added benefits of having fun as a queer person is it drives the bigots crazy when they're attacking us and they see us making time for joy and pleasure and sex and poetry and porn and dance and connection and music and theater and friends and our family and our, our families, it pisses them off. It ruins their day. And I have found so much joy in my queer life, ruining the days of people who hate us by having a good time. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. 13 Lee fan tweets. Since I will have extra free time during the summer, I have finally subscribed to the Magnum Savage Lovecast. Been promising myself for a while now. Glad I finally did it. We're glad to. 13 Lee fan, thank you so much for becoming a Magnum sub. Please say hi at the next sack lunch on July 7th. Literation tweets. I told my husband about Findom yesterday. Today I found a snippet on the Savage Lovecast explaining how Findom works and shared it. His reaction, interesting. I wonder how you'd pay process that money for taxes. That's a really good question that your husband asked. We will get you an answer. We'll get your husband an answer in an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast. And finally, WN Brown 99 tweets, in the intro to episode 816 of the Savage Lovecast, you said you wouldn't discuss mass shootings with kids at the table, Dan. Sadly, because the right wing values guns over actual living children, my kids are frighteningly comfortable with school shooting conversations at the dinner table. Yeah. Hmm. That is sad. I wish our kids didn't have to think about mass shootings. I wish our politicians would think about our kids. All right. If you want me to read your tweet, even your sad ass tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted to your social media, to TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter about the Savage Lovecast this week. Helps get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. And now some of what you guys had to say about some of the things I said on last week's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I'm calling just to comment on the 24-year-old who was concerned that she was being too judgmental with her boyfriend regarding his relationship with his daughter that she didn't have, that he doesn't have contact with. I am shocked by the number of young people who call in thinking that you're not supposed to judge who you're married to, that somehow uh, you have to accept all of these people's faults and their shortcomings, um, or it makes you a bad person. When you're selecting a partner for the rest of your life, you better be judgmental about who they are and how they're going to contribute to the relationship and how they make you feel and how they provide security and happiness for you. And that's true whether you're a man or a woman. It's just crazy to me uh, that people are entering relationships thinking that it's some sort of amateur social work arrangement. If you want to help society, volunteer at a homeless shelter or donate money for some other cause, but don't marry into it. Hey, Dan. 
wanted to talk to you about episode 816, where you had a guy whose dip won't come out to play when he does three ways. I think you might have missed a little thing in there, and I just wanted to give a little feedback. The problem with his erection started when they met somebody who happened to be the first one they met, and he seemed to insinuate that it was somebody he could maybe catch feelings for. And I think that's where the problem really started. So every three-way since has been potential boyfriend auditioning and a potential threat to the relationship since that very first one happened. And I think that's what's making the dick so nervous that it won't come out to play. And that can happen sometimes. So I think the best thing for him would be to look into talking to his boyfriend about, hey, what are we going to do if one of us catches feelings? What does it mean for the relationship? And I bet that boner is going to come right on back. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about the first caller on episode 816. He mentioned that he was a, a dom and his sub had asked him what turns him on. She really wants to find out what, what he wants to do. And you counseled him that, you know, maybe go back to what he was doing before uh, he got into the kink me or what was turning him on before he had partners since he's so used to pleasing a partner. I would have taken it a different way. Actually, I just came to this conclusion recently myself, too, is he loves giving pleasure. I would embrace that and make that her kink. And it sounds like maybe it already is his kink, but but just accept it and don't have to find what what you like if what you like is pleasing other people. So I'm exactly the same way. I've always been that. I've always wanted to please the other person. And I just recently really came to accept that. And so much so that I've got a sex worker uh, coming over next week. And she asked, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I really just want to please you. I want to find out what you like. I want you to bring your toys. And just really accepted that. And I'm really excited about it. I realized that the women that I really like when I was talking about, you know, the best sex I've had in my life, when I think about it, it's the ones that are really vocal and really showing how much they like it. And I think that's why I like it so much is because it just really turns me on. And that is my kink, is turning other people on. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Savage Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Savage Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanceSavage. Follow Dr. Joe Court on Twitter at Dr. Joe Court. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.